I think some of the best moments in life happen around a meal, right? Like if you think back to that magical evening or that connection with people or whatever, like there's a good chance that you were eating something when it, when it went down, right? Like you could probably think back. I, I've got memories of, of meals I've had throughout my life that some of them were like, oh, that was just so great. And it wasn't just the food. Like maybe it was, like maybe it was like your mom cooked your favorite meal. You're like, oh, that was so good. I, I remember one meal I had when I got done playing soccer when I was a kid, like a, when I was 11, I came in, and I just remember, like, I was tired and whatever, and she cooked this thing that I really liked, and I just sat down and ate it. Like, I remember that meal, right? And, like, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was just awesome. And then through my adult life, there have been conversations that have kind of lingered over a meal late into the evening or whatever, and it's just like, man, this was, this was just great. And I think I think the reason that's so powerful is that there's a lot of things going on when you have a meal with someone. There is um, conversation, so you're hearing things and, and you're sort of processing things and then you're speaking, so you're kind of engaging the thing. There's the smell of food, which is its own, can be its own joy, you know, like, okay, this is really cool, we're smelling something. There's the taste of the food as it goes down, there's the feel of the, the texture of the food, unless you're eating like seafood, that's gross. But uh, other things, you know, like, that's my personal thing. It's not biblical or anything, but anyway. Actually, the Bible says don't eat shellfish in the Old Testament, so I don't do it. Um, kidding. Kind of kidding. Um, so th- there's, there's, there's the texture of the meal. But, so all the senses are kind of firing at once, the, the smells and, and everything. And it all comes together to be like this really wonderful uh, experience. And it, it can, you know, come together, be a wonderful experience, something memorable. And I think um, because meals have a way of like, because they fire off all the sen- senses, they, they have a way of like, imprinting that moment in your soul, you know, like, oh, that was an incredible experience. And because meals can do that, I think that's why Jesus, when he was trying to imprint something in his followers right before he would leave them, because they've been traveling with him and working with him for a couple years, and in the final week of his life, he grabs them and and sort of gathers them together for one final meal, and he chooses that meal to teach them some very important things, and even to take the food that they were eating and use that to teach them a lesson that I think they would never forget, and it's actually something that he taught there. We are still, it, it left such an imprint We are still celebrating that thing today, thousands of years later with millions of Christians all over the world. We're all kind of doing something very similar uh, today as we sort of gather around a meal when we we gather together as a church. So I want to just get you up to speed on the final week of Jesus' life. We're, We're in this series called The Final Week leading up to Easter, and we've been talking about basically the Sunday through he gets crucified on Friday and then resurrection is Easter Sunday. We're talking about that last week of his life because there's so much written in the scripture about that week. Yes, Jesus taught and he, and, he, um, and he healed people and he did things for three years, but that last week is pretty important. There's a lot going on. And so the last time we gathered in here, last week we were out serving all over the city in Rise Richmond, which actually, um, if you're following chronologically at that last supper, Jesus does the foot washing thing. We, if you're in small groups, we talked about that, which is a great, uh, a great symbol of service, which we practiced last week as a church serving all over the community. Before that, we talked about this fig leaf thing that went on that was kind of weird where he curses this fig tree. That happens on like Tuesday. 
And then on Jesus' final week, nothing is recorded about what he did on Wednesday. He might have played golf. We don't know. Like he was, we're like, what, why is there nothing here? I think there's really, the reason there's nothing there is maybe he's just resting. There's downtime because he knows what's ahead of him. He knows the seriousness of what he's about to accomplish. And there's just nothing recorded in the Gospels. But on Thursday is when it, and when it picks back up. And on that Thursday evening, he goes into Jerusalem and he gathers for this meal with his followers. Jesus is going to be killed by the Romans. He's going to be crucified on that Friday of Passover. Jesus knows throughout his life this is what he's going to do. He is orchestrating this. Let's be clear. He's not going to be accidentally killed. He knows what's coming. He's planning for it. He is planning on being uh, executed by the Romans by crucifixion on that Friday. And if you think about it, it's pretty difficult to orchestrate your own execution by the hands of the authorities. You, maybe you could think of something similar today where you've probably heard of like suicide by police officer where people will like commit a crime or something or wave a, wave a gun at a police officer or something in an attempt to be shot by the police officer they, so they can, you know, because they want to die that way. Like that's kind of a, a, a weird thing. And in, in some ways, um, what Jesus is doing is similar in the sense that he's orchestrating his own death at the hand, from the hands of others to happen on that Friday. So in order to do that, he has to control a lot of details that are going on around it, um, how angry he gets, because he, get, he gets in there and he provokes the crowds, he provokes the, the religious leaders, he challenges them in the temple, Ta- Topher taught about that a few weeks ago, um, and, and then it just sort of builds up to this scene where he's going to be arrested um, on, on a, on a thurs, Thursday night in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. So I want to read it to you, we've been in mostly in the book of, of Matthew, I want to read uh, Matthew starting with verse 2026, and we'll jump in there. Uh, There we go. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into a city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. All right, one thing we need to recognize here is that Jesus has got a plan for this. So his disciples are coming to him, and they're saying, what's the plan? And that, that's a normal thing. If he's the leader of the group, they're going to look to the leader as his custom, and they're going to say, hey, it's Passover time. We're going to celebrate this meal together. What do you have planned for this? Um, how, are we, how are we going to celebrate this? There were four festivals throughout the year that Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the Passover uh, is, is one of them. They, they came to celebrate what God had done in the Exodus. Let me just give you a quick background on that. We actually covered this in greater detail at this church back in August. But um, in the year 1446, roughly B.C., uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh in, in Egypt and says, you need to let my people go. Let the Israelites go out of Egypt who were being enslaved and had been slaves building the pyramids and such. They had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. And Moses, because God prompted him to do so, Moses stands before the leader of the Egyptians and says, you need to let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that. And God sends 10 plagues over the course of, of, of about a year. He sends 10 plagues on the Egyptian people to try to force Pharaoh's hand so he'll finally relent and let the people go. 
well, it, it, it keeps going, and each plague's kind of getting worse, and there's just a lot of bad stuff going on. And then finally, in the 10th plague, and this is a really tough one, we did a whole sermon on this back in August, but on the 10th plague, God sends a death angel to Egypt to, um, and, and basically it's going to come kill the firstborn in, in Egypt, the firstborn children in Egypt, and, and which is an intense thing. There's a lot to talk about there, why God would send that. We, we cover that. I'm not going to go through all that right now. But the way the Israelites were able to be saved and not killed, well, the way their, their children weren't damaged or, or weren't killed by the, the death angel, is they were to put the blood of a lamb, they were to take the, a lamb's blood and put it on the doorpost. And when the death angel passed over the city, saw the blood of the lamb on the door, he skipped over that house. And so the effect of that is the Israelites were saved, their firstborn were saved, the, the Egyptian firstborn were killed. And that was the thing that finally made Pharaoh say, all right, I'm, I'm done with this, you guys get out of here. And so he released. And so that, that, the, that death angel passing over is called Passover. And so uh, the, the Israelites said from that time on, hey, we're going to celebrate this. We're going to remember this. And so every year they gather together and they say, remember this time thousands of years ago when God delivered our people from bondage. We were in bondage. We were in slavery. And God saved us um, by the blood of a lamb on a, on a doorpost. And so they get together and they, they have this meal. Um, and, 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 and they ask Jesus, hey, you know, Let's, let's have this, when are we, what are we going to do to have this meal together? And so they get together to celebrate Passover. Jesus has made arrangements already. You can see in this text, he's like, go, there's going to be a certain person. There's a place set aside. We've got this set up. He's got it set up that they would go into the city and celebrate this. Jesus was not sleeping in the city at night. He would go outside the city and sleep in, in a place called Bethany, a town outside the city. Um, probably because... When you are provoking people and when there's a lot of tension and a lot of drama going on and people are getting really worked up and angry as he was provoking people this week, um, bad stuff happens at night. And if Jesus is going to control his own crucifixion so that he would die the week uh, on that Friday, he doesn't want to be in there every night because stuff goes down at night, guys, right? Like, Jesus was not going to be arrested in front of the public library at noon. This was going to go down at night. Because things happen under the cover of darkness. There's shady things that go on. People are conspiring against him. There's a plot against him to kill him. And he knows this, so he's not going into the city at night, except on this night he decides to go in there because this is when he's orchestrating for it to all go down. Side note to teenagers in the room, this is why your parents don't let you stay out after about 11 p.m. Okay? Because we all know nothing good is happening after 11 p.m. There's just nothing out there going on that you want to be a part of. Well, you may want to be a part of it. We're not going to let you. Um, so he goes in there and, and it's a ten, you can just, you can just feel the tension of it. I wish, I wish I had like that, like we need like a good John Williams score to play in the background right now, right? Of like that they're going to the city, it's dark, they're going to have this final meal together and, and, and celebrate that. Jesus has arranged it. Um, and, and what happens when they, when they get in there? Look at verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Now, when you imagine the Last Supper, I don't know what picture comes into your head, but the picture that typically comes into my head is this one, right? The Last Supper. This is da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, which if you want to picture what the Last Supper actually looked like, you're going to have to basically not think of this picture because most of the details in here are wrong. This looks like what a Last Supper would look like if you were a 15th century Italian, not a 1st century Jew. 
But other than that, it's dead on, you know, like there's like leavened bread on the table, which is like the big, you know, puffy bread, not, not like an f- unleavened bread, a flat bread. Um, the disciples are all wearing like some good, like Italian sort of robes. Uh, Jesus sitting there in the middle. Um, if you believe the Da Vinci Code, somebody's making a chopping motion at Mary Magdalene's neck. You can read about that later. It's all fun. Um, but Da Vinci painted this thing, and, and so you kind of picture the Last Supper, that they're all sitting up at a table. There's like this sort of Italian meal in front of them. Um, for whatever reason, Jesus is like, everybody get on this side of the table. We're going to take a picture. And so everybody's on one side of the table. Like, it's just weird, right? Like, but that's the image. When we think the Last Supper, that's the image. But what the text says is that when evening came, they were reclining at the table. This is not lazy boys. They're not like all kicking back. Recline at the table the way these worked. And I've actually, uh, I got an opportunity to go to Israel a couple years ago, and I saw places where they did this. Tables are out on the floor without chairs, and you would lay down to eat. I think that seems uncomfortable. They were good at making it work. You'd lay down on your side and prop yourself up with one arm, and then you would grab your food like this. So you're kind of laying like this. You've got somebody behind you, somebody's in front of you, kind of in, in a U-shape, kind of in a semicircle. You're all laying ar- around this table. And because you're laying down, um, there was some, you know, some cleanliness things to think about. And, and so what you would do is you would make sure your, your feet are washed. You're kind of getting down there on the ground. And so you would clean your feet and hands and make sure you're clean for a meal. And so this is, this is why there's no servant uh, in, in the room that night. The servant who would have washed people's feet was probably celebrating his own Passover meal with family. And Jesus didn't have that person in the room. So Jesus takes the role of the servant. You read this in John 13. Jesus at that meal, he takes the role of the servant. He gets up and he cleans everybody everybody's feet, which is a gross job, and then they all lay down, they recline, and, and, they, and they have this meal together. Now, the Passover meal is not like a normal meal. It's not like, let's just all eat, and it's a free-for-all or whatever. I mean, it's kind of family style, what we would call it, but there's a particular way you would eat a Passover meal. To this day, Orthodox Jews will celebrate this. Uh, there's, a, there's a way you eat it. There are, there are elements there on the table. There are things that you eat. There's things that you drink that represent something. And typically what happens in a Passover meal is that the youngest person in the room, often a child, would ask the, the presider, the person kind of leading the meal, would ask them this, these questions and the presider would give the answers. And so they would say, why is this night different than any other night? And they would say, well, let me tell you about the Passover. And they would kind of go into the whole script of the Passover. Um, and they would explain the Exodus and, and, and all of that is, is different. And they would say, um, why do we eat bread with no, with, why, why are we having unleavened bread? We're used to bread being kind of fluffy and, and sort of puffy and, right, and soft. Why are we having this like flat bread sort of cracker thing? And they would say, well, because during the Exodus, when the Israelites were going to get up and leave Egypt, they did not have time to put yeast in the bread to make the dough rise. Yeast takes a while to work. They didn't have time for that. They just threw the ingredients to bread together. They grabbed what they could and they ran. So we celebrate that and we remember by eating bread that doesn't have yeast in it. It's this, it's this flat bread, this unleavened bread. That's why we, that's why we, because our, our people were uh, in a hurry. And, and they would take that bread um, and, and, and let me read Matthew 26 what happened when Jesus took it. He said, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now this was, would have been a very weird thing for them to hear because they're used to at the Passover meal, the, the presider over the meal would say, this is the bread of affliction, uh, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. They suffered so we can be delivered. That's typically what you would say as you, as you take that bread. 
But Jesus takes the same bread and he says, actually, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body that we're, that we're eating and I'm going to lead you out of slavery or out of an even greater bondage. This is really powerful stuff he says here. He says, this bread represents my body. It will be snapped in half like you break bread. It'll be, my body will be broken, and my death will deliver you from the greater bondage. The Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. You're going to be delivered from greater slavery to your own sins. And Jesus is pointing them to what's about to happen in the next 24 hours, which is the cross. He's pointing them to his death. This meal, he, which originally was about being delivered from slavery in Egypt, he now reinterprets and says, this is about what I am doing to deliver all of us, from all of you from, from sin. This is about his journey to the cross. And he takes those powerful symbols. And we are told as followers of Jesus to do this thing, to eat this meal together, to eat this bread and this juice. We'll get to the, the wine part of it here in a second. We're told to eat, do that over and over which is, which is weird. If you think about all the things Jesus did, he walked on water, he healed people, he uh, raised someone from the dead, there was, uh, he fed thousands of people with just a little bit of food. Like there's all these miraculous things that Jesus did. We are never told as his followers to recreate those. We're not, we're not supposed to like go make water into wine or anything like or walk on water or whatever. What we are told to do over and over to, to celebrate this thing continuously is this meal is to eat the bread and drink the wine or the juice and, and do this together. And as we do it, we're supposed to remember and celebrate his death. His death on the cross is what he was trying to, to imprint into their hearts there in that meal. That death on the cross is the central event of human history. And the reason it's so important and the reason it's so central to our faith is because in that moment, Jesus takes, as he dies on the cross, he takes all of the sin of humanity and it is laid on him and he, and he pays for and covers that sin. So, so think of all the sin of humanity and I'm talking like Genghis Khan and, and Hitler and things your brother did and then like you, right? All, all of us together, all of your sins and Jesus takes that on the cross and his death uh, pays for those things so that we don't have to, that God is going to punish the injustices out there, including the ones we have committed, and God's going to take all of those and, and, and place all of that punishment on Jesus on, on the cross, and it's going to be a, a, a powerful thing. This can be hard for us to get our heads around because I think our scale of sin or the way we see sin and brokenness um, I don't know, sometimes in a, in a very comfortable world, in a, in maybe, maybe in our Western world, there's a lot of luxury and comfort, and so maybe we don't see sin the same way. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine sin in your own life or think about things that have happened to you or near you or with people you know and love. You've seen some brokenness. We maybe, you maybe know people who have been murdered or um, just different horrible crimes and abuse and things that have gone on in your own life, and so you've seen some of the darkness of, of the world. But in other times and in other cultures, entire villages are getting slaughtered. People are getting blown up and, and just some of the most horrific stuff that's gone on throughout history. And, and so there's, when we talk about sin, there's, there's a range and it's all pretty dark. And there's a lot of rough things that have happened. And I've, I can't, I don't know how you are, but I can't look at evil very well. I have a hard time watching horror movies, right? Like I just, I'm like, ugh. 
like I don't want to I don't want to see the you know whatever this person gets hacked up and whatever like I I just I have a hard time watching that and and so imagine if you're God and you see it all all the time you have seen Adam and Eve sin you've seen their children Cain kill Abel right one generation after this human experiment starts they're killing people you've seen that you're seeing where God has seen what has happened to you personally and things that you have done or things that have been done to you. God sees all of that. He sees all of the stuff around the world and throughout history. I don't know how you can look at it all because there's a lot of dark stuff out there. There's a lot of pain and brokenness and sin and God takes all that in and he sees all of that injustice. And and he's seen, and he sees what we have done to each other. And, and we want him to make it right. Like we would say, look, if there's a God in the world, he's going to take all that bad stuff that's happened, he's going to fix it, he's going to make it right. But I think the truth is, if we're really honest, we want God to make it right, like we want God to punish people for their sins, just other people, not us. Like, I want God to give other people justice, give those people what they deserve. But when he's dealing with me, I would prefer grace and mercy for the ways that I've messed up. I want him to write that guy a speeding ticket. I would like to get off with a warning, right? Isn't that basically kind of how we view the thing? But if God is truly God and he's going to give out justice and he's going to love us, um, then everybody's got something they're going to have to answer for. And there's there would be punishment coming for us except that Christ dies on the cross and is punished for not his sins because he didn't commit any. He's actually the one who went through life without committing sin. He's punished for ours. So in that way, God is just in punishing sin, but he's loving in that we, his children, are not punished for those sins. Um, And so it's, it's a powerful thing. This is why the scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus goes to that cross that next day because he loves us so much. He's not, um, he's not pretending our sin never happened. He's dealing with it, and Jesus bears that sin. And you see God's mercy and his grace and his justice. You see all of that come together at the cross. And so when we take communion, when we take that bread, that broken bread that represents his broken body, this is what we're remembering. We're remembering that, man, he did this for me. He suffered for me. So we see that in the bread, but not just the bread. We see that in the wine also. There were different cups that they would drink during the meal that represented different things. And as he's taking one of those cups of wine and holding it up to explain to the room, this is what he says, verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's pretty weird, right? So one, he's taken bread and said, this is my body, it's gonna be ripped apart, I'm gonna be crucified, nails through my hands, I'm gonna have a spear put in my side, I'm gonna be broken on the cross. But also, during that, I'm gonna lose blood. I'm going to pour out my blood that will spill out of me. And he takes wine, what they're drinking, and says, actually, this is my blood. And that's pretty weird to think about. The early Christians were accused by the Romans of being cannibals. 
because they were really into this imagery. And the Romans thought that when the Christians got together, they were eating and drinking, like drinking people's blood and eating flesh because Christians would talk about it like this. They would go, this is Jesus' body and, and his blood. And Jesus says he's going to give, uh, the, 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 the blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins, right? That, that word for is like um, in, in place of, because, because there have been sins, I'm going to move, I'm going to do something in place of you for that. He's using the language of self-sacrifice as he's describing what he's doing. Now, there's something missing from this meal, at least in the way it's described, because if you think about some flatbread like crackers and then wine, you're like, well, I mean, I don't know, it sounds okay, I don't know that I would get real full on that. Like, that's hardly like a big celebration, you know? But the main course of the meal at Passover was a lamb. So they would eat meat. They would eat a lamb that was there. Uh, And they would sacrifice a lamb, and all these families would do that, and they would celebrate this together. Why? Because during the Exodus, they were supposed to put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, and, and by that blood, they would be saved. And so that's what's going on here as well, except Jesus is the lamb in this situation. Jesus is the one who's going to be sacrificed so, so that we can all be saved. He is the central thing in this meal. It's not just in the bread, in the wine, but it's also in the lamb. And he reinterprets even that in the meal. And that's a weird thing. This is why in churches today, Christians today sing, sing things like, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Like if you're not from church or you didn't grow up in church, you walk in and they're like, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You're like, what are we talking about? <laughs> like, did they do something before I got here? <laughs> like, does this happen later in the service? Because <laughs> I think I'm going to leave early, right? Or worse, we are washed in the blood of the lamb. Yuck. Can we just for a moment talk about how gross that is? <laughs> right? And these are things you say in worship songs. In churches, like all over, we're like, oh, washed in the blood of the lamb. Yeah, I've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Like, I think we need a little explanation on that because that sounds really gross, right? This, this like, this flesh and, and blood thing, it's, it's, it's pretty nasty. But it, it's, it's part of our, our faith. Here's what it's about, that, that the lamb was sacrificed for us. Jesus was sacrificed for us. It's about these two things. One, we done messed up, all of us. And number two, God loves us so much that he's going to, that he's going, that Jesus is going, his son is going to pay for the sin so that we don't have to. So we've messed up and it's probably worse than you think. And two, you're probably loved more than you think. That God is a gracious God who, who, who loves us and, and, and can deal with us. And man, what does that do for us? The fact that we are, we are known in how we've messed up and we are still loved. What does that do for us psychologically? Don't you think there's a sense of identity and security in that? I mean, a lot of us go through lives and we don't want people to know our stuff. We're so terrified of people finding out something about us. What's true? What's real? Oh, man, if they only knew, they wouldn't like me anymore. This is how a lot of us walk through our lives, in fear of being found out. And what we see at the cross is, no, actually, you, you have been found out. God really knows what you did, and who you are. But he loves you. He sees all the ugly stuff, the stuff we don't even want to look at inside. God sees all of that and still loves you. I think there's a great sense of security from that. 
There's a great sense of I don't have to prove myself. There's a great sense of identity that you are grounded there. The creator of the universe thinks you're okay. And you go, okay, well, this is, this is powerful. It gives you a meaning and, and, a, and sort of anchoring in your life that no suffering can take away from you. I think that's a profound thing. And I think it should also make us humble. There's no reason to boast. God didn't save you because you're just so extra, right? God didn't save you because you're just so cool and awesome and he just really liked you. No, he, he's, he's extended this for all of us. And so I have no reason to boast like I'm something special. God loves me. He loves you. He, he, he loves us. And, and, and so we don't, we don't boast. If, if, if we're going to say anything, we're not going to say I'm better than somebody. All we could say is I'm better than I used to be. And that God is, is doing his work in us. And so the love of God is powerful and it doesn't make us boast. And then there's one more thing in this meal that I want to talk about. Let me take you back to verse 29. It says this. This is the last thing he said here. He said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's a, a future focus when we take communion, and then there's a, a, a past focus. There's a remember Jesus, remember, his cro- remember the cross, remember that he died for us as you take the bread, as you dip it into the juice. Remember what he did for you and your sin. There's sort of the past, there's the present, or what you're, whatever sins you're wrestling with, and then there's this future piece of like, hey, one day, it's going to be good, and we're going to have a meal together, and, and there's going to be eternity, and there's going to be heaven, and there's going to be no more tears and no more sorrow, and we are going to be there together. So when we drink that juice and we eat that bread, we're not just saying, oh, I'm glad my past is covered. We're saying, I, I can't wait for the future, that there's something better coming than all of the mundane stuff that I'm dealing with in the here and now. And that's a powerful, there's an anticipation of being with him one day. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a, 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 a scene where Pippin, uh, one of the hobbits, where Pippin is um, about to be, like, killed. And so he's being, like, attacked and sort of chased by the witch king. And as the witch king is sort of bearing down on Pippin, and it's about to be his last moment, he's about to die... In that moment, he hears the sound of horns. And some of you Lord of the Rings fans are just nerding out right now. You're just like, oh yeah, that moment. Yeah. He hears the sound of horns, and it's the riders of Rohan. And they're coming, and they come, and they deliver Pippin, and they, they rescue him. And Tolkien writes in the story, it says, from that day on, Pippin could no longer hear the sound of distant horns without breaking into tears because he remembered his rescue and he remembered that his enemy was defeated. And I think in communion, there's something going on like that. As we take communion, it is the sound of the distant horns. It is that we remember, oh, my, my enemy has been defeated and I have been rescued by my God. And that's a powerful thing. So we, we look back at what has happened and we look forward with anticipation for what is to come.